Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. Today, I'm joined by Mercedes Samudio. Mercedes is a friend, a colleague, a parent coach, a speaker, a best-selling author, and the founder of the Diversity in Parenting Conference, which will be held September 13th to 14th, 2019 in Anaheim, California. Welcome back to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. I'm here today with a dear friend and colleague, Mercedes Samudio. Welcome, Mercedes. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. I'm really grateful that you had the time to talk today. Yes. Mercedes, do you want to let our listeners know a little bit about you? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker in California. I am a speaker. I am a best-selling author. And I am the founder of the Diversity in Parenting Conference. That's me right now. <laughs> That's all that I am right now. <laughs> well, it's incredibly consuming. You have this big conference coming up in it's September, right? I do. I do. And that's going to be in Orange County, California in September Correct. of 2019. Correct. Okay. This year. It's nine this year. months from now. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to cover that. But before we even go there, you and I go back quite a ways. What is it? At least four years now. At a, yes, at a, exactly. Right? Yeah. About. Yeah. And during the time we've known each other, I think we've both witnessed transformations in one another. Mm-hmm. And I would go so far, you know, in reflecting upon my knowledge base of you to say that what's changed about you is how you embody your work and how you deliver your message. But it's not your message that's changed. That's good to know. Thank you. <laughs> does that resonate for you? It does. And you know what's interesting is that I think I really connect with what you said because I feel like from the beginning of my career doing this work, I've always wanted to do this type of work, working with parents, working with families. But I think since you've known me, especially watching me, you know, kind of build myself from the ground up, so to speak, it's, I've gotten more confidence in being okay with how I talk about it. I think before I kind of hid behind certain things and felt like I wasn't really supposed to be in certain spaces. And now I don't have those same barriers, those same kind of restrictions with myself and my message. Can we dive into this a little bit more? Because I'm thinking that for a lot of listeners, a lot of just people in general, regardless of what our professions are, that shedding these layers of what we think we're supposed to be 
like that's the deep, soulful, hard work that keeps us stuck. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with that. So how did you do it? Oof, how, right? <laughs> I think one of the things that's the common thread throughout all of my growth is my passion for wanting to help families. I found, interestingly enough, as I was looking for something else, I found my entrance essay for my undergrad degree, like literally found it and read it and was like, wow, it's the same person, you know, just a little bit more mature and older. And in that essay I wrote, I want to help one kid not feel the way I do entering college. I want to support children in feeling more confident and being able to soar in life. And even though it's evolved into working with parents more, I think that message and that feeling is still the same for me, where helping that one child has become metaphorical, right? So it's this idea of even when I help my parents, I'm helping them too. I'm helping their child and them really heal and develop and feel confident in now their role in raising a child. And so I feel like that my message has always been, like you said, the same, that I've just gotten a little bit more confident in doing so. And if I can just kind of hypothesize why I think that's happened, I think it's happened because of my own healing and my own ability to reconcile whether my child has been healed and whether or not my child is still on that journey to being healed. And when I say my child, I'm talking about that internal child of mine that I am always nurturing and taking care of. And I think that journey and not being scared to talk about that journey of my own healing has allowed me to feel more connected to my overall message and feel more assertive in my overall message. I love this. I think no matter what topic I'm talking about on this show, healing our own inner children is something that is coming up in every episode. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly Mm -hmm. something that's present in all of my work and in my own journey. Yeah. So I think this is like critical and I would like to be really explicit maybe even in this conversation about the steps and the way that both you help other people do that work too. Because I think in some ways when you're working with parents, that's a lot of the work. It is a lot of the work. And I think for me, it's really dispelling that myth that once you become a parent, you're something else or someone else. I think that becomes part of the commiseration or the bonding between parents to feel like once you become a parent, you're something else. But what I really find in all the work that I do is that parents are really just human. They're not super, they're not better, they're not worse, they're just themselves. And now they have this parent role, this parent identity that they've got to try to embody along with all the other pieces and identities of themselves that they've been working on embodying throughout their whole life. And so I think it's really important for us to realize that parents come with their own internal struggles. And some parents have done the work to heal their childhood. Some parents are consistently on that journey to heal it. And some just kind of buried their childhood just so they could survive and keep going. And then when they have a child, I think all that stuff comes flooding back for them. And there's not always a healthy space for them to manage it and reconcile it because we all assume that once you become a parent, you got to hit the ground running. You don't have time to stop. And so we don't really give parents that space to heal wherever they kind of start off or wherever they need to heal. And that space that you're talking about, I mean, I think it's the healing space, but I think what also it's making space for is the healing of the intergenerational traumas that have been handed down 
generation by generation. And that's all the messages, right? Uh That's the places in some ways where we get the messages of the shoulds. Yep. And the way that I describe or define parenting identity is not just what you're doing when you're actually caregiving and when you're actually caring for a child, but it's all the stuff that comes with the term parenting that you've created and held and put into your space throughout the years. None of us come into parenting with nothing, with a blank slate. We all come into it with everything that we've seen throughout our lives, the parents we had, the people who we've watched parent, what culture currently says about parenting, what research currently says about parenting, the way that the society sees parents. We come with all of that even before we make the final decision to bring a child into the world, to bring a child into our home. And I think sometimes we forget that all of that is a huge part of your identity as a parent, just as much as actually the physical, visceral experience of taking care of an actual child. And so that's why it's so important to reckon with these messages, to reckon with this part of yourself. Yes. And so in your doing that work, right, that's where you discovered that this was the interest for you professionally. But interestingly, your personal life took a different turn. Right. So for me, I am not a parent. And my husband and I, over the past few years, have decided that that's not something we want to do for our family. And so over, you know, part of my identity formation in my career working with parents was reconciling this idea that first and foremost, I didn't have kids. I didn't have kids when I first started it over 10 years ago, and still I don't. And then once I made that final decision that that wasn't a journey I was going to take, reconciling what it meant to still show up in this space. And you did it. You did that reconciling work, which is what enables you to really show up, to stand solid and feel rooted in the work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, it became, well, why am I in this space then? Right. And on one end, professionally, I feel like there's no credential, even if I had kids, that would help me to understand each and every parent that I work with. Right. So even if I had 50 kids at home, I still wouldn't know what your home looked like and what your parenting looked like and what your struggles and everyday life looked like. So that didn't really hold any more weight for me. But then I also realized that I'm the child, grown up child of the child that the parent that I'm working with is trying to raise right now. And realizing that I can also come from that perspective. And then lastly, I was talking to someone a few days ago about it, and they asked the question, you know, how can you do this when you don't have children? And I said, I actually really appreciate my perspective of not having children because I have a different perspective on this whole experience. If I had a child, I think a lot of my parents would probably make me question my own parenting and really kind of push me in that way. But I think when I'm working with parents and I don't have kids, my perspective isn't about parenting. My perspective is how does an imperfect human raise another imperfect human and sit with that? And that's the perspective that I'm always working with my parents. You know, they come to me, I want my kid to do X, Y, Z. And I say, well, how do you manage X, Y, Z? And how did you learn X, Y, Z? And then we come up against their expectations, their cultural views, their identity. And we realize how hard it is to be an imperfect human and sit with the fact that you're going to eventually raise an imperfect human as well. And how do we wrestle with that? And that's kind of the perspective that I come with when I'm working with my parents. 
I'm totally digging on this and really loving it. And my mind just like ran in like three different directions. So (laughs) slow me down a little bit and where you want to go. Okay. Because the first part I'm sitting with is this piece about how do we as imperfect humans raise imperfect humans and just creating the, like the stillness to acknowledge that's the first part of the reality. Right. Which is hard because I think a lot of times we struggle with our own imperfections every day, right? Before we even worry about what the children are doing, you're worried about your own to-do list and your own limitations and your own abilities to complete that to-do list and what that means for you while also navigating someone else's to-do list, navigating someone else's life and trying to manage theirs. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so we're always struggling with that. I will often laugh at myself when I'm in those moments of like utter panic because I have four people whose opinions, mine, my husband's, my two kids, yeah. you know, like everyone who wants something in a different direction. And I'm like, ah, I have right. to do all, the, you know, right. so yes, I get that. Right. And then sitting with that every day. Right. And I think a lot of times the more aware you are as a parent, I think actually the harder it is to do that. I sometimes tease that it's probably the ignorance is bliss phrasing that we use is actually totally accurate. When you're not aware, some of this stuff just doesn't even phase you, I think. But the more aware you become as a parent, the more you aware you become as a human, you begin to realize all this nuance in being a human. You begin to have to really build up resilience around all of this that you're aware of. And I think both takes a lot out of us to first bring that awareness into our lives and then bring in the management of that awareness into our lives. You know, I think this is where like kind of mindfulness kicks in. Mm -hmm. And so far for this podcast, we have two others that are all launching around the same time as this one. One is about mindfulness and relationships. Mm -hmm. The other one is about keeping desire alive in long-term relationships. Mm. And interestingly, you know, especially in that second one there, we talk a lot about getting dumb and happy because that's (laughs) the place where pleasure is. Right? When we're overthinking things, when we're adding all that pressure to things, it really gets heavy and hard. It does. You're (laughs) not wrong. And I think it happens in every aspect of our lives. So it happens in our relationships. It happens in our parenting. It happens in our careers. It happens in our friendships. Like It It happens in the bedroom. It happens at work. It happens everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. So there's something about, and I think that's what mindfulness really introduces us to and brings us to, is the way to escape all that pressure, that there is a release valve. Yeah. I agree 100%. So as we're talking about this, another piece that I'm thinking about is that, you know, where these messages come from and where we've absorbed these messages over the years also has an impact on us. Yeah, it does. I think one of the things that's so important to do, and I love doing this with my families when I first start working with them, is talking about their overall vision for their parenting and their family. And just in that question, just in that space, you learn about all the expectations, all the ideologies, all the feelings they have about a family. What kind um, of things do you hear? I should be, you know, able to take care of everybody and everyone should be healthy. I should be able to tell my kids to do X and Y and it gets completed. I should have a partner who is collaborating with me as opposed to against me. And we should all be able to communicate all the time and talk to each other the right way. The siblings, you guys, should, that my boys should always be able to get together. You know, my boy and my girl should always be able to figure things out. And it's a lot of... I was going to say that all sounds yeah, great. 
It does, right? And these are the visions, right? That when I ask parents, you know, and sometimes I'll even go a little bit back and I say, before you even made the decision to bring a child into the world, what was your vision? What did you want? You know, what was the lead up to it? I've had everything from, I had no idea I wanted to do it. It just kind of happened to parents who really felt like, doing this was going to mean something more than it might currently be meaning for them in the moment so that the child was going to love them that the child was going to make things easier for them that the child was going to make their life have more meaning or they were going to be able to do more and when i listen to these myths and these ideas and these visions i realize how much we've bought into the myth that parenting has to mean something that if we're not, you know, there's this thing that goes around where it's like parenting is going to be becoming a mom is going to be the biggest and most important thing of your life. And we've bought into all of that. And so when it's not, or when you no longer want it to be the guilt, the shame, the fear that comes up with that, because societally, it's supposed to be so all encompassing and exciting and the biggest, the best thing you'll ever do. And for some parents, it just isn't that for them. And then watching them try to reconcile that with their actual vision for their family is a very interesting space to watch someone be in. And this is where, you know, I'm identifying with the mission that I first met you with four Mm -hmm. years ago, where you identified your mission back then as ending parent shame. Yeah, and this idea of not just external shame, but that internal shame we give to ourselves too when we're not meeting whatever expectation or vision we've had for ourselves. Yeah, and so that transformed through your own process into not just the work that you were doing with your clients, but into a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Shameproof Parenting. Shameproof Parenting. And do you want to talk a little bit about that book and about kind of the journey that that book has taken you on? I have to say, and it's funny because someone who's known me for years brought it up. I remember not actually liking parenting books because of the false expectations they put on parents and thinking to myself, I'll never write one. And, you know, it's the same thing as when you say as a parent, I'll never do this to my kid. And then the kid gets here and you actually end up, you know, doing what you said you would never do. I realized that for me coming up to this book I really had to sit with why didn't I like parenting books and why was I so adverse to writing one? And I think for me, I felt like I didn't want to be the authority on how to parent, but I wanted to place a nugget of information, a nugget of thought and awareness into whoever reads the book's life that there are so many ways to raise a human and the journey doesn't begin with A through Z, one, two, three techniques. It begins with you looking at yourself and your own internal processes and your own vision and reasoning for wanting to do this and then coming back to that every time it gets tough. Why did I want to bring a child into the world? What do I want to do with this? How do I want to be in the world and show up in my parenting identity? And that was kind of what helped me to feel more confident about releasing that book because I didn't want it to be another book set of strategies where parents read my book and then think they can go and do exactly what's being said and hope that their family miraculously heals. But for every parent and every professional who reads this book to know that this is a journey, that this is a process, and there isn't, unfortunately, no matter how hard we try, an A through Z, one, two, three step process of actually raising a human because there's no A through Z, one, two, three process of being a human, right? And so that was really the vision that I had for the book and hoping that as I 
talked about it, released it, spoke about it, did workshops on it, that people would get it. And so far, I feel like that's happened with every workshop I do, with every professional conference I go to and talk about the book. I feel like it's starting to shift people's visions and mindsets around how do we not only parent, but how do we sometimes as professionals set up the space to actually help parents? And I think that this is maybe a great place also to segue into representation. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Let's do it. Because I think there are certain models of how to parent out there. And especially if we're talking about helping people find their own way through this, because Mm -hmm. there's no one right way to be a human. Right. If that's the case, then we have to also present people with different possible frameworks. The parenting world is populated by the majority white women, usually, not even white men, really, because they are more of the actual majority of our society in America. But I feel like it's mostly white women. And it's mostly white women who talk about things like conscious parenting, attachment parenting, things that require you to have your basic needs met. And they require you to be a part of a culture that sees you. And I think when we talk about some of the parenting ideas that have come out, like, again, the conscious parenting, I'll go into the no spanking stuff. White women are able to do that because they're seen in the culture, right? They're seen as the people who are soft, who are empathetic, who are nurturing. There is a stereotype that white women are sensitive, are good, are pure. And I think other cultures of women who are doing this, and then I'll throw in men too in a minute, but other cultures of women, they're not seen that way. They're seen as harsher, or they have other type of stereotypes that when they become mothers, we don't attribute those same traits to them. Black women are still seen as harsh and mean, and it's still being portrayed that way in the culture. So when you have a Black mom trying to enter the conscious parenting realm, trying to enter the attachment parenting realm, she might be the only one there And she might be the only one in her community or in her family that's doing it. And that can be really difficult to continue on in a space where there's no one else there that looks like you. There's no one else there that understands your struggle. Mm. Or a Latina mom or an Asian American mom or, you know, any other woman who on the outside is doesn't look like the ideal culture, right? That white is right kind of culture. Even adoptive moms. A lot of, you know, there can be a lot of unseen or moms who have children with special needs or, you know, we can keep kind of uncovering more and more places in here. LGBT moms, right? So moms who identify in that community where they might come in and they say, oh, where's your husband? And they say, well, it's my partner who is a woman. And then watching everyone kind of react to that and not know how to support that mother. Yeah. I've seen that happen too and heard stories about that as well. Yeah. I've also seen and heard a lot of stories of parents or moms who are parenting children who are different, who may have, you know, come out as trans or queer early on and how that can also be a difference in terms of parenting. Exactly. So we need representation. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, which is why we need to see more people who are doing this work who don't look like the affluent white woman. Because I think that's when I'm talking to families of color and I began to talk about some of these parenting practices, attachment parenting, conscious parenting, you know, playful parenting, anything that's out there. The first thing out of their mouth is, oh, you mean what the white people do? And then we have to unpack that. And what does that mean? And, you know, how can they incorporate some of these ideas into their family, into their culture that feels authentic for them? And I think it's really difficult because there's a lot of judgment, too, even within those 
spaces of are you doing it right are you being an effective conscious parent are you doing attachment parenting right like there's still a lot of judgments even when you're trying to do the more positive parenting strategies people are still judging you people are still looking down on you and so if there's that layer of judgment plus the layer of being a person of color plus the layer of not having anyone there that looks like you it just becomes insurmountable after a while and parents who don't prescribe to that culture, they might kind of pull back and not do it. It feels so isolating. Like yeah. that's what's coming up for me as we're talking yeah. about it. And we're yeah. really talking about these layers. I'm thinking you're just feeling invisible on so many levels. Right. right. Everywhere you turn, you know, every piece of your identity isn't being seen. And yet parenting has suddenly become your whole identity. Right. And I think seeing just only white women talking about, and I have to bring Dr. Shafali into this because Dr. Shafali is I want to say she is Indian American and I cannot, I don't know what her definite identity is, but she is a woman of color. So she's like one of the more prominent Mm -hmm. women of color who's doing this parenting work, but she's newer. She's in the last few years, right? So we've still had for decades it being white women kind of dominating this area. And white men. I can think of a lot of prominent authors. Dr. Sears, Dr. Dan Siegel, like those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you see all of that and then you realize that white people aren't the only people who are parenting. And so if they're not the only people who are parenting, then where are the professionals and the experts and even the research on what it means to parent in another identity and another cultural identity and another gender identity and another sexual orientation identity? Like what does it actually mean to do that? And so you took all these questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you did something with this. Let's start there. I got frustrated. frustrated. (laughs) I was like, what is happening? Why aren't there more people speaking? And I decided to do the Diversity in Parenting Conference. Let's slow this down a little bit because there's so much to probably say about the Diversity in Parenting Conference. But before we go there, where did you get the courage Mm -hmm. (laughs) to put yourself out there in that way and say, you know, I'm angry that there's not enough representation out here. I'm frustrated by this, and so I'm going to do my own. I'll reframe that question. Where do I continuously every day pull my courage from? That's where I'm at right now. (laughs) Because I think that initial courage is what we all feel when we're frustrated, right? And we want to do something. I think about the women's marches. I even think back to the civil rights stuff. I think that initial frustration is always that great motivator, but then you start doing it, and you know it doesn't always work out, or things don't go as quickly as you want. So you have to continuously pull from, you know, a space and find that courage. So for me, it has been surrounding myself with people who also believe the same thing. I posted in a Facebook group that I'm in, the Black Girl Clinician Collective, and said, I am frustrated. What is happening? Why isn't this happening? And I could tell you that out of all the comments, 90% of them were like, do your own, stop being mad, do your own, get mad and do your own. And I was like, all right, And then one of my colleagues, Janae Johnson, who was actually going to be one of the speakers, she came into my Facebook Messenger and said, set a date and do it. That's literally the only thing that's stopping you right now. And after she said that, I said, all right, I'm setting a date. I'm doing it. Let's do it. And here we are. We're doing it. Yeah. So every day it's I'm pulling from colleagues, friends, families, loved ones, you, right? Saying, okay, can I keep doing this? And people keep saying, yes, I'm here. I'm supporting. We're doing it. So I think another key piece here is that you're harnessing that frustration. I I heard somebody recently say that courage always has rage inside of it. (laughs) I agree with it. 
that's like a key ingredient here to keeping yeah. us moving and keeping that courage yeah. being, you know, inviting us to show up and to yeah. do bigger things is that we have to find something. You know, one of my teachers, Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes, she talks a lot about how we have to kind of create these containers and we have mm. to figure out what are we so frustrated about? Like, what are the things that we hate about the world? And mm -hmm. then how do we turn those around so that we can talk about them in ways that people can really digest and hear? Mm. How do we bring love yeah. to those things? Yeah. And you know, I've actually been, speaking of representation, I've been actually contending with not always bringing love to those things and how that also has a healthy space too, that we don't always have to be empathetic and loving when we rage and when we bring our courage out. I follow a woman by the name of Rachel Cargyle. I think that's how you say her last name on Instagram. And she is ferocious and her discussion about anti-racism and making people look at it, right? Especially white women and white feminists. And I love it. And I remember at first being so triggered by her, like, oh, why isn't she doing it with more love? And why isn't she saying it with more? And then I realized sometimes there is no love there. It's just pure courage and rage. And that is also just as important to moving forward in the world as doing things with love and compassion. And I feel like sometimes we try to put value on one or the other and you don't always have to. Yeah. I think there's something really deep there. And I think both sides, it's like, you know, it, we're talking about two sides of the same coin yeah. and we don't always have to make it pretty and neat. Yeah. I think the reason why sometimes, and Dr. Estes would call it angelizing, the reason why sometimes we angelize things or we put that other spin on it is so that our message, you know, it, it softens the message. Mm -hmm. And it's the same stuff I teach couples who are raging yeah. at one another. Yeah. That when we soften the message, we do ourselves the service of helping right. the other person help us. Of, I don't think right. we always have to do that. Yeah. And I think in certain spaces, you don't. Like, I think in a more intimate space, that makes sense. And I think when you're thinking about, and this is a whole nother topic that I'm sure you could have someone else on because this is in my wheelhouse. But I think when you're talking about like social activism and changing things socially, I think there, it's a different space for that. You've got to get angry sense. about things in order to make movement. Yeah. That's what's going to unblock things and start new pathways. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I, the only reason why I do that out there is because I think sometimes I struggle with being, going back to kind of my wheelhouse of parenting, my childhood taught me to be good, to be, to don't, to not create chaos, to always be respectful, to always say the right thing and to always do the right thing or else. And so I think growing into my own voice, I had to push up against the good girl image that I got praised for and that helped me survive my childhood. I had to push up against that and say, sometimes people won't like what you're doing. And sometimes people might come into your private messages or into your emails and question and critique and that's okay. Right. And how to manage that. So that's kind of why I brought that up because I think sometimes we say, well, I have to do this in a nice way, not realizing that no matter how nice it is, people are still going to come up against you and not like the way you're doing it. And you have to be able to override kind of that people-pleasing thing that some of us learned when we were children. Well, you're talking about boundaries. Yeah. Right? So what we're immediately talking about right here is how we establish those healthy boundaries yeah. where we know what we're about. Yes. And that is yeah. so much about knowing what your story is. Yeah. Because when you know what you're about, you can firmly say the things that matter to you. Yes. And what somebody else yes. says from the outside, it's like that old nursery rhyme, I'm rubber, you're glue. You yeah. can leave it on the outside if it doesn't resonate. Yeah, 100% agree, yes. That's deep work. So tell us a little bit more about this conference, about what's to be expected in September of 2019. 
So what the conference is, the conference is really aimed at mental health and parenting professionals who want to not only see more diversity in the professional conferences and professional development offerings that they have, but also want to learn how to be more of service to families who don't look like the traditional two-parent, heterosexual, two-child household. Because I think that we need to have skills for managing parents and families that don't look like the traditional family. And so for the professionals who are interested in that, and when I say mental health and parenting, obviously mental health being people who are doing mental health stuff, you know, master's level, bachelor's level, but also parenting professionals. And that's anyone who comes into contact with parents and families. So parent coaches, teachers, coaches, youth groups, those type of people who are like, we are seeing so many different types of families in the work that we're doing and the services that we're providing. And we would like to know how to support them, how to create healthy spaces for them, how to know what terminology to use, how to know what resources are available, how to find experts and professionals and resources and books that speak to them directly. And that's what this conference is about. It's about having speakers who this is their expertise. This is what they do. And so going to their sessions, listening to their topics, you're going to learn not just about their topic, but who else is out there, what else is out there, and how you can get all of that information to take back to the work that you're doing when you're interacting with parents and families as a professional. I love this. So is this conference mostly for professionals or is it also for parents? I would say if you're a parent and you want to come, understand that it's going to be delivered. All the messages are going to be delivered at a professional level. So I think that if that's something that you're interested in and you're kind of into that academic space, understanding your parenting, then yes. If you're more like, I just kind of want strategies and I'm not really ready for that yet, then this might not be the most effective space to do that in. That's nice to have that clarification. And tickets are available now, right? Folks can go ahead and register. Yes, they can. We Right now, up until March, is the early bird tickets. So if you go to the links that are going to be accompanying, I guess, this this talk. They'll be in the show notes. Yeah, then you should be able to get the tickets that are available at that time. Wonderful. Mercedes, I'm curious if you could kind of like encapsulate what this journey has been for you as a human. Mm. This journey from like, you know, I mean, I met you four years ago, but your journey started way before that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, like to where you are now, which I'm not even sure, like, I don't know about you, but when I think about kind of some of the places where I've arrived, they haven't even been sometimes within my realm of visioning. Yes. Right. And the yes. places where I hope to aspire and go to, I'm not even sure if I'm visioning into them yet. So yeah. I'm curious about your journey, you know, just human to human what this has been like for you and what's unfolded on a, you know, more personal level. So I think for me, learning how to appreciate the actual journey is where I'm at right now. When I was younger, it was all about getting to somewhere, accomplishing something, getting that goal and then doing the next thing. And I think there are still parts of me that are like that. But during that goal kind of setting, during the getting of the goal, if you will, I'm learning to actually appreciate what's happening to me and how I'm growing and how I'm changing as a result of it. And so on a more personal level, what that means for me is every time I set a goal now, I really think about who do I have to become and how do I have to change and how do I have to grow in order to get there? Not just the steps like go here, read this, put this link up, put this picture up, right? Those are the more generic steps, but who do I have to be? to get there. And that's part of, I think that's where I am now in my journey 
every goal that I set, I'm always thinking, okay, you want this goal, beautiful, beautiful goal. Now, who do you have to be to get there? What kind of deep work do you have to do to accept and appreciate that goal whenever you get there? And that's kind of where I'm at right now. If I had to encapsulate everything that I've done, I think it's been moving from this goal-driven person who only sees the end to now being this goal-driven person who sees the process and appreciates the journey as well. And how has that shifted the relationships, the people around you? It's allowed me to actually enjoy relationships more and not just see relationships as stepping stones, but to actually enjoy them and grow them. Because I realized that part of what goal setting is also cultivating relationships with yourself and with the people who are supporting you and being around you. And so it's allowed you to really show up. Yep. You know, it strikes me that part of representation, part of this whole conversation is also about self-acceptance and being able to represent ourselves. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And I think when you see yourself reflected in the world, it actually gives you permission to do that. I think this is why representation matters so much. When you don't see yourself reflected in certain identities or certain spaces, you don't give yourself permission to even envision yourself there. And when you do finally see an African-American in the presidential role, you know, an African-American superhero, you know, an African-American woman just throwing her hat into the bucket to run for you know, president, you began to envision, oh, okay, maybe I could be on that path as well. And I think when we get down to the crux of representation, that's what it does. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be the next black president. No, but it gives you space to say, if he can get there, I wonder what I can do. I wonder where I can go. Because now you can envision that path that maybe before you never thought you could even be on. Mm -hmm. That's just delicious. I know that within my home, For my daughters, you know, when I found an Asian American author to start reading books to Mm. by them, it broke things open. It helped them to see themselves in the literature we were reading. So, you know, from a young age, I can see the impact that that has. And I, you know, I think it has a similar impact for all of us throughout all of the ages. It does. I mean, I'm 33 years old. And when Black Panther came out, I can't even imagine, you know, because you follow me. I was just completely enamored because I am a black girl who's been a black girl geek since she could read a comic book and never really seen myself reflected that way. I've seen myself as a sidekick. I've seen myself as the comic relief in those areas, but never in the way that Black Panther showed it. Right. And I'm starring role. Right. And I was like, ah, still to this day, as you can see, I'm still talking about it. The movie's been out for over a year, but it's that level of just feeling validated and seen. And all of my identities, so not just as a Black girl, but also as a comic book geek, right? Seeing, being seen in all those different spaces. Oh, yes. Right? So when people come to the conference, to the Diversity Parenting Conference, what are you hoping that they leave with? Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I need to really think about that. If I can just kind of off the top of my head say something, I would say I want them to leave with a sense of appreciation for diversity and representation, not just in entertainment and literature, but also in the professional space. And I'm guessing because you have such a diverse panel of speakers and educators, I'm guessing that there's also going to be an element of people leaving having felt seen. Yeah. Felt represented. I'm seeing that even right now when people are responding to the promotion for it, saying that this is so diverse. I've never seen this before. I've never seen anything like this needs to be the norm. Like I'm seeing people really respond to it that way. I mean, I remember seeing years ago when other conferences would be put on that there'd be the opposite reaction where Mm -hmm. people would say like, 
gosh, look at that white male panel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think just looking at your panel, yeah. it's a different impact already. Agreed. So Mercedes, this has been such a pleasure to jump in and dive in with you a little deeper. And I am so excited to hear more about this diversity parenting conference. I'm guessing that this is only year number one. So there's much, much more to come from you. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. And where can people find you, Mercedes? At my main website, which is shameproofparenting.com. And then if you're looking for more information about the conference, it is diversityandparentingaconference.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Mercedes talks a lot about her message in this podcast. As you, as you, as you heard, um, I've gotten to watch her throughout many stages of her journey. And I'm so inspired by, by all she is and how she puts herself out there. I think that she um, is a trailblazer. And if you feel like there's a signature message, it's something that's deep in your core that you want to start getting out into the world, then my colleague Annie Schusler and I are putting together this amazing retreat. It's called Signature, and it's going to be held from April 25th to 28th, 2019 at Menla Mountain Resort in Phoenicia, New York. We would absolutely love to have you join us there. Here's a little review from Mercedes about some of the work that that we had done together in the past. I also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my Connectfulness community. It's a virtual community and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com slash community. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the Connectfulness Collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com slash collective. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. A few extra little gratitudes. I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Stay tuned for our next episode with Cindy Darnell. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.